Exit for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody and welcome back to all new, all different Uncanny X's for Podcast, the show where we examine the X-Men comic book franchise as it continues its 80s dominance of the market. I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And we're here to talk a little bit about the Miracle of Marvel Man or the Marvel of Miracle Man or whatever it is you want to call it. Whatever the hell it is I just read. Well, I mean, you read some real good stuff, man, okay? I didn't say it was bad. I said whatever the hell it is I just read. So far we've discussed Miracle Man family's finest which or marvel man family's finest it's all the same big name with two giant m's on the chest and it's been a really exciting experience to take a look at the 1950s and 1960s serials that helped shape modern ubermensch storytelling i personally appreciated the tour through the past but dear god it was getting kind of difficult yeah getting kind of difficult it didn't start very easy that's true no that's for real true for real true for real real today however However, we're going to be taking a look at a series of stories that are decidedly not from the 50s and 60s. We're going to be taking a look at the Marvel reprints called Miracle Man 1 through 4. These stories tell more or less the Miracle Man feature from Warrior number 1 through 11, as well as the Miracle Man special from August of 1985, the Marvel Man special from 1984, and the A1 number 1 special from 1989. All of these stories were written by a gentleman credited as the original writer, who is better known as Alan Moore, and the art is mostly attributed to Gary Leach and Alan Davis, with a little bit of help from Steve Dillon, who his loss just broke my heart, and Paul Neary. There was also a bit of an assist from Mick Anglo, the creator of Miracle Man, as well as Don Lawrence, who helped give the prologue the later written, but then earlier inserted, which is kind of ironic because it's actually inserting a story earlier into the run later. (sighs) They give the prologue that nifty feel. You know, of the entire thing, I feel that prologue is probably the most confusing to me. That and all like the weird alien Ridley Scott-esque psycho future alien stuff. And I'm going to say alien one more time because that's how alien it was. But uh, the linear stuff about modern Marvel Man and coming back to his identity, I I liked it. It was wild and sometimes graphic, but I liked it. I really enjoy your description of the word wild because everything about this was incredibly confrontational. While we're reading this being published in the year of our Lord Robert Downey Jr., 2014, these stories originally saw publication from 1982 to 1989, with a majority of them taking place from March of 82 through July of 83. Marvel worked pretty hard to pull together all of the stories they 
could to really milk this run for all it was worth. This run was considered in many ways the birth of the stories that Moore would go on to tell with Watchmen, Captain Britain, and many, many more very famous Promethea, Tom Strong, I can't stop naming famous Alan Moore stories that are more or less attributed to this point in his career. One of the things that can make discussing these stories so difficult is following the order listed. As it's printed, you're expected to read Miracle Man 1, Warriors 1, 2, 3, 5, 4, 6, 7, 8, the Warpsmith stories from 9 and 10, followed by Warrior 9, 10, and 11's Miracle Man features, followed by the Marvel Man special, and the A1 number 1 Warpsmith story. The disjointing on this can make sitting in and really understanding it kind of difficult, but I wouldn't remove the Warpsmith stories personally. Why exactly? One of the things that the Marvel Universe benefits from is the understanded interplay that the heroes have together by putting together a lot of these modern myths, these super god among men. We're able to paint together a narrative of magic technology and super science that shapes the worldview of the people inside the universe. By supplementing the idea of classic Miracle Man or Marvel Man with the Warpsmiths, these beings who were just so far beyond the understanding of anything that classic Marvel Man or for that matter Mick Anglo would have told, we really get a confrontation and a contradiction. And I feel like I bring it back to those two words all the time. A confrontation and a contradiction. The Warpsmiths in and of themselves are kind of a contradiction. They seem way too powerful to be literal, but they're very literal and they're not bound by the linear notions of the narrative, which makes their value in this story very free and not to get too ahead of myself, but they definitely set up a number of the ideas that are going to populate the Alan Moore, Alan Davis, Jamie Delano years of Captain Britain. Do the Warpsmiths themselves appear after this and have they appeared ongoingly? I'm pretty sure the answer is no and no, but they do appear throughout this run of Miracle Man. After all, this run of Miracle Man saw two issues of Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham's second arc published. As it was, the series only hit issue 24, and that took greater than a decade to do thanks to the unusual publishing schedule of the material. Okay, okay, okay. Beyond the prologue, which was introduced to the narrative three years later, and the prologue itself, a lot of fun, the first things we set up are this sort of heartbreak that is Mike Moran's life, and to have it contrasted with that bright, magical, pastel sort of 50s, 60s feel was incredible. And I was really blown away by how well they were able to capture the spirit of the original Miracle Man stories. And that's partially because they brought in Mick Anglo, the guy who created and wrote all of them. They really wanted to pull together a story that felt true to Miracle Man. And I think the most powerful moment for me as a reader is the end of the 1956 prologue, where we continue to zoom in on Miracle Man's eye. It's as if to say the book is about to transition to the horror show that is the world of Mike Moran. And the art is so severe, and it really clearly is the birth of that sort of British invasion that would come over with Sandman and Swamp Thing. And there are just so many 
shocking and amazing moments in what feels like an issue where nothing really happens except he transforms. And yet that is so reminiscent of so many origin issues of the heroes that we've been reading, like Captain Britain, like Miracle Man. Absolutely. There are so many real-world layers to this, like when he transforms into Miracle Man for the first time, and it horribly burns the bad guy's face. It's a little bit that edgelording of superhero culture that I don't enjoy, but I understand that this was at the forefront of that notion, and so really one of the first to explore the concept. Yeah, we can call this proto-edgelording. What came first, the proto-edgelording or the edgelording prime? It's hard to say, but that magical moment that they're going to come back to when Miracle Man is in flight above Earth, there's something so powerful about him in his first story back, entering Earth's atmosphere and then breaking free of it. He's not just super powerful. This isn't Captain America waking up from the ice. This is a motherfucking alien. Or a god. That magic word, that word that we're going to explore, that idea that so pervades this book. It's contrasted constantly by so many incredibly common moments. I really do love the psychological deterioration of Liz. I feel like it's Shakespearean and beautiful and tragic and it really feels close to fridging but in the very few pages we get of her she has so much personality and nothing tragic happens to her here exactly i don't know if being pregnant with a terrifying notion is tragic exactly i suppose we'll find out alan moore wasted no time with coming up with ways to deal with so many of the eye rollier moments of the original ideas that made up the miracle man and marvel man lines whether it's the magical super god astro physicist who gave him his powers or Liz literally laughing at him. It is amazing. And his upset reaction to it is just heartbreaking. This is my life. Stop laughing at it. And he and Liz even both seem to agree that they have an enormous problem with a number of the tropes that pervade his story. I think one of the things that makes this very much not a 1950s or 1960s story is the heartbreaking demise of Young Miracle Man. Yeah, and that pretty much the first page of the second issue. It is a very definitive way to say goodbye to the safety of the 1950s and 1960s that was dominated by this idea of uber power. And I don't think it's very clear what you're looking at on the bottom of the final page of the second issue, but I do think that Miracle Man moves at a decent clip for what it is. These stories are told so far apart and at times there would be five and six months between more working on and releasing these and the second collection wastes absolutely no time in being far more confrontational the second collection moves the entire focus onto the miracle man family as if the first issue introduced miracle man now let's talk about the rest of them and also tits tits and butts and more tits wait till we get to the giant vagina must we oh we very must however before we get to the vagina we have to get through the giant man baby i actually do find johnny bates and kid miracle man and this future for him graphically disturbing yes kevo as we were reading the original and you kept being like kid miracle man is a sociopath and i was like i've read all of this i've read all of this one of the things i loved the most in all of this like seriously one of the moments that is the reason that i i love my wonderful little mickey moran miracle man lego so much is because i love 
when he says that he was listening to Johnny's story and he wanted to believe for a moment that Johnny wasn't lying to him but there's something about the way he stands that's just not human it's like for all that Mickey talks about that he hates that he's not Miracle Man because Miracle Man's just better than he is he's still a little bit sharper than the normal man and there's just something so profoundly better than most of this sort of I'm a psychopath on a kill spree kind of storying that we see way too frequently now in the age of the Joker that I feel like Kid Miracle Man did a little bit better. It does escalate a little quickly but that is one of the perils of compressed storytelling unfortunately. I agree I probably would have preferred an issue or two where we thought Johnny didn't have his powers but holy shit he is drawn terrifying. Yes. The use of color. Now I will admit these are retouches. This is not what the original art looked like. The color has been adjusted. The quality has been clarified. There's been some digital cleanup work. They have been fixed for errors. At the end of the day they look so good because they're meant to and that's why they were worth paying for again. I do have the originals. I have a handful of the original warrior stories and I have more notably uh, the complete original run of the Alan Moore Miracle Man issues. So I like having these. They're cleaner. They're nicer. It makes the reading a little funny, but it's better. And I know, Kevo, you were like, uh, the Warpsmith's so weird. But I feel like one of the things that really makes it all worth it is that fill-in issue they did for Warrior Number 4 with Kid Miracle Man and Azachorn, where we saw the future. And then there's that moment where he sees the Miracle Man in the past. And there's all the time travel. I actually really love that story. I just don't know that I like follow it he goes into the past to collect this energy from himself and then still loses anyway well kind of not really one of the things is alan moore is playing an absurdly long game here and you just sort of need to buckle in for it because with all of these divergent timeline stories he's going to be telling how quickly the futures that we see are no longer capable of being the futures that were promised to is alarming here's a fun thing though the date given for the the rebirth of Miracle Man is February 4th, 1982, which is four years before Nico's birthday. So they knew I was there. They just had the year wrong. Well, what's funny is February 1982 is my sister's birth month. So, you know, it's all connected, I guess. And while I will acknowledge a notable lack of young Nasty Man, I feel like Kid Miracle Man visually represents everything young Nasty Man does as well. Young Nasty Man was Kid Miracle Man all along. Well, and I know we're making a funny haha, but in some ways, we're like a legitsky true true. Well, and jumping ahead a little bit in terms of the plot, knowing that all of those adventures and visions were basically in their heads, it's entirely possible that that's what Young Nasty Man was, a manifestation of what Johnny Bates grew into. Speaking, though, of what Johnny Bates did or didn't grow into, in a moment of rage, he shouts Miracle Man, and it detransforms him back into the broken child Johnny Bates. This is an enormous hint about what's going to become a major revelation for Mickey and his future. But stuck as a child, Johnny can no longer transform by shouting Miracle Man, which he does numerous times. It's kind of like they quickly neutralized the threat of the only person as powerful as Miracle Man. Well, considering this isn't the last we have seen of Johnny Bates so far, I don't know how easily dispatched that threat truly was. And that's why I was quick 
to use the word neutralized and not use the word defeat. Ho ho. That said, let's talk about a fascinating man with sapphire teeth. Because of the way he's drawn, I kind of assumed this guy was going to be revealed as Gargunza, and then he was not. No, he's far better. He's Mr. Cream. Apparently. Some of my favorite pages in the entire series are Liz and Mickey testing his powers, and all of the ways they're fascinated by the confrontation of what they're seeing and what they believe to be possible. I get that. There's a lot of cute moments in those scenes. However, not a cute moment is poor Johnny being terrorized by Kid Miracle Man's adult manifestation in his brain. Uh, no. You better hope he never wakes up. And, you know, speaking of kids and waking up and things that you're gonna have to deal with, so Liz is pregnant with Miracle Man's baby. Which means that Liz immediately jumped on the chance to bang Miracle Man. I mean, I'm pretty sure we saw it. It was issue two or like four or five, three. I don't know how to refer to the issues here anymore, but we saw them post-coitus. So then comes Mr. Cream killing a dude, lol. Writing down I was lying Steve on his notepad. Like, it's a little too melodramatic in a way that they are making fun of stuff being melodramatic in these issues, you know? Oh, I do. I completely agree with you. It is very melodramatic in an over-the-top way. I was lying, and now I'm going to kill you. Steve is underlined twice. As if he needs to clarify that he wasn't lying to someone else. So then we get to Mike feeling inadequate to the man he shares a brain body sort of kind of with, and that's fascinating. Yeah, it's weird to do a story about a dude being cuckolded by himself. It's like a really bad version of Memento mixed with that other movie called Drive, not the one where everybody is like, oh no, racism, but we're white. The one where everybody's like, I got into an accident, let's bang. Sure. No, really, there was like a low-budget autoerotica movie called Drive. I, I believe you. Or it might have been Traffic. It had a car title. So it really wouldn't be a Nico show if somebody didn't feel cuckolded by a dominant personality. And you know what? I would say that is completely on Mike, but there really is a moment later on where Marvel Man's like, you're not talking to Mike now, you know? Where I'm like, god damn, he really does want Mike to feel cuckolded. Little bit. And speaking of people who have dominance over someone else, the way Evelyn Cream gets the best of Mike Moran is sort of brilliant. He shoots him while he's holding a baby so that he can't transform or he'll blow up the baby? That's pretty badass. Yeah, but then it is immediately pulled back on at the beginning of the next issue where he's like, oh, they were actually tranquilizer bullets, lol. But thanks to that, we get so much like, I mean, like, seriously though, unless Mike Moran was tied down, I can't imagine him sitting there long enough to get all of the information he needed, and while I'm not a big fan of a page of exposition for the sake of a page of exposition, getting all of it in this fact, fact Although I have to imagine it's like fact, clink, 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 because I have to imagine that those teeth are just awful to listen to. I agree. I agree. I agree. I agree. I do really love this issue, though, personally. Oh, absolutely. I think everything in Miracle Man number four is just spot on perfect. It's reveal after reveal that just takes my breath away. And I'm sexually attracted to Big Ben. I got really confused for a minute, and I thought that Evelyn was Big Ben secretly the whole time. A lot of things in these issues weren't completely clear to me. 
thing. I get that. They were kind of trying to pioneer some new styles and art and seeing what they could push and what boundaries they could take to the next level. So it was hard to be consistent all the time with that. And this is a lot of these artists' earliest, most interesting work. So they're really trying to find their voice. They're going to have a number of missteps, and I don't blame you for seeing those. Big Ben was really fun and really interesting, though, and a really great counterpoint to Marvel Man. Because Marvel Man is all about his brains and his thoughts and his perspective, and Big Ben is kind of just bunch bunch. So, in the middle of the dispatching of Big Ben, we get one of the two most heartbreaking sequences in the book. We get poor Liz being psychologically destroyed. I mean, this is like Skylar on Big Bang. Wait, Breaking Bad, right, it's not Breaking- Okay, so I was gonna call it Big Bang Bad, I think? I'm not sure what I was gonna call it. So now we need a mashup of Big Bang Theory and Breaking Bad is what you're saying. Bazingenberg! Yikes. So one of the most heartbreaking moments is watching Liz be heartbroken, but then the other most heartbreaking moment is watching Big Ben be heartbroken, immediately following finding out that all of the Ubermen of Britain are apparently the products of Dr. Amilcar Gargunza! Gargunza! I also love Mickey being like, oh my god, thing after thing. Obvious and dumb. We all had the same backstories, how didn't we catch this? I mean, you were chemically induced. That's a huge part of it. And one of the big things that we see over and over again is how much he says, how didn't I realize this? But it does come back to something he says to Liz. In the light of the 1950s, pastel, bubbly, magical art, everything was different. It wasn't the same world on paper. Yes, it was a different world in reality regardless. Everybody was not living in the same world, but on paper, the world of superheroes were defined by a series of tropes that were very different than this. And it's easy for us to believe that the world was always as jaded and suspicious as it is now, but it really wasn't. It's black swan theory that makes us think that people must have always been like this, but people have become more shrewd and more skeptical about stuff like this, and that's part of Liz's reaction and laughing at something like Dickie Dauntless, but, you know, you might not have given something like that a second thought back in the 50s. And it's sort of that human reality that Moore is trying to drive home with so many of the little asides in this story. For example, Saturday Morning Pictures, what a random couple of pages. Yes, very much so. I feel like it's trying to remind us that there is a human element to this world as you read it. And trying to reinforce the concept of how the mundanity of the real world can continue in this world of miracles. It was at this point that a lot of writers liked exploring the concept of people being too jaded to believe that this is possibly true. The skeleton that they're handling that he talks about being, you know, probably just a kid's craft project that the dumb scientists were working on is a real fucking person. We are to believe that that is the actual body of Dickie Dauntless and they're just handling it without a thought because, you know, that's what would happen and that's what these writers were starting to explore at this time. And they're really trying to make sure we understand exactly what they're doing with these fused beings, this two beings in one place sort of idea. That's what happened. It looks like Dickie kind of merged with Young Miracle Man. 
Batman in the face of the explosion? I think it's that the explosion was so powerful that it like semi unfused them, but not fully. And then that is part of what killed them along with the blast. I'm not a hundred percent, but that was what my read on it was. And that it's not just one guy whose body changes, but that it's two bodies with one guy sort of is such an important step to this. This is about evolution and that's where the Warpsmiths come in. Oh man, those two Warpsmith stories. Yeah. What did you think about Aza Chorn and Tenga Drill? I only followed about like 40% of it. I'm gonna be really honest, so feel free to like walk through and explain what the hell I just read. So, I have no idea either. I've read it a bunch of times. I'm pretty sure Aza Chorn is real sad and has to fight somebody and wins and in the end everyone's like oh yes but the futility of life so like some sort of weird ragtag group of alien orphans a la the crew from captain eo were like pranking some warpsmith soldier people and one of the neophyte warpsmiths like ordered a strike that killed one of the little orphans and everyone was like oh shit you did a bad but then the big warpsmith leader was like well they were hired by bad guys anyway so technically you weren't wrong it's literally the plot of that ds9 episode we just watched with Worf a little bit i see that yeah fascinating yeah weird timing on that one i don't remember what episode number it is but it's in season four if anyone else feels like looking that up for themselves and then the second story is just we have to replace tanga drill now that you helped him die i understand that story less. So I think it's more that these eternal beings are faced with a death at their level, and they're like, we are these greater than linear beings. Do you ever think about how extraordinary we are? And then they sort of rattle off what makes other creatures that are kind of less extraordinary than then to us just as extraordinary. And they're like, yeah, we're not that important. I guess life is tragic in a different way. I guess all life in the grand scheme of things is ultimately not insignificant, but all the same level of significance. So overall, I am really glad that I had the background in the original Miracle Man stories before starting this series off. I definitely think that it wouldn't have had the same effect if I hadn't read any of the original stories. I don't know if the ones that Joey Q picked were necessarily the best to represent the original franchise. I might feel differently as we read more into Alan Moore's run on the character, but so far, I I, I don't know, the living plant and all that I I I don't know and outside of necessarily setting up who like Gargunza was and the relationship between the Miracle family and Young Nasty Man as a foil for the new manifestation of Kid Miracle Man I don't know that I gain a whole lot from those either but I think it's really those tent poles he was trying to hit Kevo it's been amazing getting to talk about this with you and looking at the shocking and weird world of Miracle Man until we return to further deconstruct this damage 
damaged super god. Where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram at Kevorelly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can also find me on our other program here on the network, Husbands Talking More or Less, HTML. You can find me on the Facebook page for that program at Real Nico Kevo Action, which is also our joint Insto and Tumblr. Our joint Twitter is at Real Nico Kevo Ack, A-C-K. And you can also find the super fun, super cool, super inclusive superhero stories that we produce over at KidRiotComics.com. Nico, where can the folks find you? You guys can find me all over this network on shows like Now and Again, which I did with my childhood best friend, Chris Podcasts, or the other feeds of X's for podcast, as well as HTML, where Kevin and I talk about different franchises we love. Don't forget to check out my theme work all over this network on shows like Too Fast Forever 5930. And don't forget to check me out shirtless all over my Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And until we return to tear down the superhero paradigm, we'll see you. Kimo Toft.